0: Welcome to the Christadelphian Classics Podcast, brought to you by Wilderness Voice. Conviction and Conduct by Islip Collier, Chapter 3, Alternatives. It is a principle recognised in discussions that the onus of proof lies with the one who affirms. This rule is sometimes put to a very unfair use, the denier refusing to take up a definite position. Or express a definite opinion. Perhaps the most extreme and foolish instance of this was the case of the Jew who challenged his Christian opponent to produce the original writings of the apostles and declined to consider the analogous case of the Jewish scriptures on the ground that they were not the subjects of the discussion. There have been many instances of unfairness almost as glaring. The essence of discussion is to reason from the known to the unknown, or from what is admitted to that which is in dispute. A disputant who refuses to admit anything or to state any of his beliefs may easily gain a certain tactical advantage, but he does not in the least degree assist people to reach a rational conclusion. It is indeed just this disposition to evade the definite issue which renders most public discussions so peculiarly valueless. Now when a man settles down to a thoughtful examination of life such as our subject involves he will not tolerate these contemptible evasions. He's not to consider any special proposition and if he has reduced his, re- his quest into a single question it would be the old inquiry of Pilate. What is truth? If we were put the inferior but more definite question, Is the Bible true? The onus of proof would lie with those who affirm, while the deniers would be at liberty to raise every kind of objection without incurring the responsibility of suggesting any alternative to the ideas they condemn. When, however, we put the large question, What is truth?, we all stand on a level so far as fairness of discussion is concerned. This brings us to a simple yet most important principle, which lies at the foundation of our subject. The word faith is often applied in connection with other than religious matters. A learned professor and scientist once stated that part of the theory of evolution required an effort of philosophic faith, so that however much men may think that Christian faith is out of harmony with scientific research, the idea of faith, apart from Christianity, is not altogether foreign to their speculations. Using the word in this larger sense, it appears that all men of intelligence must have faith in something. Their mental outlook cannot consist entirely of negations. Unless a man is prepared to affirm that he knows nothing, believes nothing, and harbours no opinions, and he is prepared to condense all his positive belief into one solitary affirmation of his own ignorance, he must of necessity be, in some sense, a man of faith." Every rational man will claim to know certain facts, to believe in other facts where he cannot know, and to entertain opinions even where he would hardly claim to believe. When we take a survey of life, therefore, and ask, what is truth? The question is not, shall we have faith at all, but In what shall our faith repose? Faith is always affirmative, and either faith or something akin to it is found in every affirmation. Thus, we reach the aforementioned simple but important principle. In discussing an inferior question, a man may simply deny, but in considering the major question, he is bound to affirm. Every negative implies a positive. If he denies that there is a God, he must affirm that the universe reached its present condition without a creator. If he simply expresses doubt, then exactly in proportion as he doubts the existence of God, he must be inclined to believe that the universe made itself. If he says the Bible is not inspired by God, then he must affirm that it was entirely the work of men. If he denies that there is a future life for man or a divine purpose in the history of earth, then he must affirm that all human endeavour will end in the blackness of death forever. If a believer in evolution impressed by the apparent cruelty of nature, denies that there has been any superhuman power at work in her laboratory, he must be prepared to affirm that the millions of years of struggle and suffering in which he believes have served no final object, and that the end of all sentient beings will be the oblivion from which they came. The advocate of any particular school of thought may evade these affirmations, but a man who wishes to take a philosophic view of life will welcome them. Truth lies somewhere and he is searching for it. If, therefore, he feels free to doubt any proposition, instead of meeting it merely with elusive negatives, He is at once ready to look at the alternatives and to consider the affirmative propositions his negatives imply. Sometimes there is only one possible alternative and the issue is placed on the simplest possible level. Thus, either God exists or he does not. This has always been a simple issue and The whole trend of human thought during the last few centuries has been to make it simpler. There is no need now to argue as to what is meant by God. Everyone recognises that the subject is not touched by any conception of a race of beings superior to man, but still dependent. The only possible conception of God as the uncreate, the one great reality, The first cause. In point of fact, we're all bound to recognise the existence of a first cause or force in the universe. There can be no quarrel between philosophers on this point. We say either there is a God or there is not. And we only state the same truth in a slightly different way when we say either the first cause is an intelligent, conscious Force, or it is a blind force? Incontestably, the truth lies with one of these true propositions. And what is true now always has been true and will remain so for all time. Sometimes there are more alternatives than one, and the negative may be taken to imply one of several affirmatives. Thus... The Bible is entirely true, entirely false, or partly true and partly false. Everyone who denies two of these propositions must affirm the third. It is obvious that the last named of these three propositions admits of many subdivisions and many more detailed propositions come under this one heading. In view of the importance and prominence of the Bible, a man who is seeking the truth, will fairly face the responsibilities of affirmation and at least determine for himself what is the most reasonable conclusion with regard to such an issue. Sometimes there are only three possible propositions, none of which can be legitimately subdivided. Thus, the men who first proclaimed the resurrection of Christ were either true men declaring what they knew had occurred, false men telling lies, or mistaken men declaring what they thought was true. It is difficult to see how anyone could desire any further qualification to these propositions. A man may hesitate to express an opinion But if he feels that the evidence is insufficient or that his investigations have not gone far enough to justify a definite conclusion on the positive side, he ought to be equally modest in his negations. It is possible for an honest man to be in this unfortunate position of uncertainty, unable either to affirm or deny, although we think such cases are rare. The more usual experience is to find men ready enough to deny but anxious to escape the responsibility of affirmation, refusing faith in the God or the Bible but very unready to place it anywhere else. This then becomes the first consideration for one who attempts to examine the philosophy of faith. What positive convictions or positive opinions can we entertain? Carlyle said that every man ought to have a theory of the universe by which to guide his life. The idea is not fantastic. Our actions are so completely dependent on our thoughts that if a man declares that he has no opinions regarding these fundamental truths, it's tantamount to saying that he's no conception of any duty in life. If God did not exist, men could commit no sin, the earth would have to be regarded as a product of chance, and man as the highest intelligence could reasonably consider himself as superior to the forces which gave him birth. He would be the supreme lawgiver, and what he determined was right would be right from the highest standpoint. If men recognise the existence of God but deny all special revelation then all stand on a level able to make or imagine their own God endow him with such qualities as please them and frame laws to suit their convenience. If men not only believe in God But recognise that he has spoken, then it should be the most serious business of their lives to make quite sure as to the nature of the revelation and to guide their lives absolutely by it. Truly every man should have a theory of the universe by which to live. He cannot guide his life by mere negations. The first step in our philosophy, then, must be this definite recognition that every negative implies a positive. Whether we know or believe, or only entertain a faint opinion, whether it's a case of creed, credence, or credulity, we must affirm just as strongly as we deny. The truth regarding those fundamental facts Does not vary. However much human opinion may change or oscillate, truth remains the same. If sometimes a discipline falters, let him look at the positive alternatives and re echo Peter's question, Lord, to whom shall we go? If the traveller grows faint because the path through the wilderness is a hard one and the lights ahead seem feeble, a merely negative attitude will serve no good purpose. It will merely make him half-hearted and miserable. Would he prefer to remain still in the desert? Or turn back and retrace his steps? Or forsake the path to the right hand or to the left? If he gives an emphatic negative to all these questions, what remains except to march forward? And why not march with a good swinging step, knowing that the lights will grow brighter as we draw nearer? Our philosophy of faith is not merely to point a way for those who hesitate, but to quicken the step of those on the march.